Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast. My name is Becca Bissadolshevsky, and I'll be your host guiding you as we take a deep dive into all things pelvic floor and research-based. Whether you're a pelvic newbie or a seasoned clinician, I'm here to help busy therapists listen through the Women's Health Study Guide. So if you're studying for the Women's Certified Specialist Exam or just interested in learning more about pelvic health research, we've got you covered. Today we have an article by Joanne Borgstein and Sheila Dugan, both MDs. This is on musculoskeletal disorders of pregnancy, delivery, and postpartum. Just as an aside, this article is very similar to the 2005 article that they wrote on as well on the musculoskeletal disorders in pregnancy. There may be some overlap, so if you're feeling deja vu from the last article, you're not alone. Okay, so let's get into it. This article provides a guide for appropriate differential diagnosis, evaluation, and management of these regional musculoskeletal and peripheral neurologic disorders that affect women during pregnancy and the postpartum period. The article describes the relevant regional musculoskeletal anatomy, the hormonal and biomechanical changes of pregnancy, specific conditions, and their management, as well as recommendations for exercise and physical therapy. The article reviews the current knowledge and evidence-based medical research available on the topic of musculoskeletal diagnoses in pregnancy. So, the physiologic changes are discussed first. Soft tissue edema during pregnancy is reported by approximately 80% of women, with findings most notable during the last eight weeks of pregnancy. We know that increased fluid retention can predispose to tenosynovial or nerve entrapments. Ligamentous laxity is related to the production of the hormones relaxin and estrogen. So there may be a correlation between the mean serum relaxin levels during pregnancy and low back pain or maybe that symphyseal pain. There is an initial increase of relaxin levels until a peak value at the 12th week followed by a decline until the 17th week of gestation. Symphysis pubis widening begins during the 10th to the 12th week of pregnancy under the influence of that relaxin. So remember that that widening should not normally exceed 10 millimeters, but it can be associated with tenderness and pain. While weight gain is normal, a 20% weight gain during pregnancy may increase the force on a joint by as much as 100%. So the sacroiliac joints resist that forward rotation of that very common lumbar hyperlordosis that we often see in pregnant women. As pregnancy progresses, both forward rotation and hyperlordosis increase as sacroiliac ligaments become lax. Onto a condition called osteitis pubis. It's characterized by bony resorption around the symphysis followed by spontaneous reossification. So clinically, we'd see this as a pregnant or postpartum woman with a gradual onset of pubic symphysis pain followed by a rapid progression over the course of a few days leading to excruciating pain radiating down the inside of both legs, exacerbated by any movement of the limbs. The prognosis for recovery is generally good, with a self-limited course that lasts from several days to weeks before gradually subsiding. So treatments for that is going to include things like initial bed rest with ambulation using a walker as tolerated, anti-inflammatories after birth, intrasymphyseal lidocaine or steroid injections, and they recommend an ultrasound-guided injection for best accuracy. Other options that they recommend include things like pelvic belts, acupuncture, and stabilizing exercises. Onto something a little bit more painful and uncommon, the rupture of the pubic symphysis. So a true rupture of the ligaments supporting the pubic symphysis is really rarely reported. It's thought to happen by a wedging effect of the forceful descent of the fetal head against the pelvic ring, usually during delivery, creating a separation of approximately one centimeter. There was one case series suggesting that forceful and excessive hip abduction during labor as well could cause this. 
We'd expect to see a sudden pain in the region of the symphysis pubis, sometimes an audible crack, followed by radiation of pain into the back or the thighs. A gap may actually be palpable with some associated self-tissue swelling. Treatment is generally conservative, so again, initial bed rest in a side-lying position with a pubic binder is indicated. Progression to a weight-bearing is tolerated status with a walker is encouraged based on the individual's symptoms. In extremely rare circumstances, persistence of symptoms may warrant surgical stabilization with open reduction and internal fixation. On to another uncommon injury, pelvic dislocation. Severe pelvic dislocation of pregnancy is also extremely rare, so this is where patients sustain simultaneous rupture of the pubic symphysis and the sacroiliac joints with the resultant pelvic dislocation. All of that just sounds so painful. All patients in a series from Boston develop persistent sacroiliac pain after being managed with closed reduction. Based on evidence, an operative approach should be considered for patients with symphyseal diastasis of 4 centimeters or more. Now on to low back pain with pregnancy. This is much more common (laughs) in our patient populations, right? So low back pain in pregnancy demonstrates an incident rate of approximately 50%. Low back pain rates have been found to increase in advancing maternal age, with a history of back pain during previous pregnancy, with successive births, with a higher body mass index, and with a history of hypermobility. No consistent relationship has been found between the rate of back pain with the height of the mother, with the mother's weight gain, or with the weight of the baby. Low back pain is also reported in 30% to 45% of women in the postpartum period. Risk factors associated with persistent back pain after 24 months seem to be the onset of severe pain during early gestation, the inability to reduce weight to pre-pregnancy levels, high body mass index, and a history of hypermobility. Something important to note, previous physical activity before pregnancy and exercise during pregnancy significantly reduces low back pain intensity. Lumbar disc herniations in pregnancy, although relatively uncommon, are estimated to occur in approximately 1 in 10,000 cases of lumbosacral pain during pregnancy. During pregnancy, non-contrast MRI can be performed to identify the pathology. There's no known adverse effects of MRI on the developing fetus that have been identified, but the long-term effects of MRI on the developing fetus have not been fully evaluated. We talked in the last article about causes for back pain. This article states some of the same similar theories. Those theories are gonna include things like mechanical strain, pelvic ligamentous laxity, sacroiliac pain, vascular compression, spondylolisthesis, discogenic pain, and hip pathology. One popular theory for the cause of nonspecific low back pain during pregnancy is that the growing uterus and the compensatory lumbar lordosis are to blame. Another hypothesis suggests that the vascular system may play an important role. One study theorized prolonged time in the supine position leads to obstruction of the vena cava. They also theorized that increased pressure and the venous stasis in combination with the decrease in basal oxygen saturation may compromise the metabolic supply of the neural structures, which could result in pain. Spondylolisthesis is often not worsened in these already diagnosed prior to pregnancy, but in susceptible women, pregnancy may be a factor for the development of that spondylolisthesis. So now into history and exam. A physical exam of a pregnant woman with back pain should begin with a standard neuromuscular exam that includes observation, palpation, range of motion tests, tests for muscle imbalances. We're also appreciating their posture and their lordosis, and you might see that spondy sign where there's a step off in the lumbar spine. Sacroiliac compression tests, bimanual compression over the iliac crest, and Patrick's test may also elicit that sacroiliac pain. Also recognize that a hip assessment is key. 
For treatments, the authors report that patients respond to activity and postural modifications. A regular exercise program before pregnancy reduces the risk for back pain during pregnancy. If having pain during pregnancy, they note reducing the pain prior to starting exercise. For specific exercise, they endorse things like aquatic therapy, pelvic tilt, and abdominal and back exercises. Just remember that these are medical doctors, so they're saying all of these things that we very often utilize and we can add way more to. Um, so just, just a kind reminder. They referred to a study regarding pelvic belts. It looked at women with lower back pain who are at least 20 weeks gestation and who wore a maternity belt binder during waking hours for two straight weeks. They had significant reduction in mean pain scores and there was no known adverse effects on the hemodynamics of the fetus when wearing the belt. Other pain controls they mentioned included acupuncture, which was met with 72% of participants reporting improvement during the third and the second trimester. Another positive of acupuncture is the lack of adverse effects, which is always great. Complementary medicine is often recommended for prenatal and pregnancy related to low back pain. These are things that we're going to think of including massage, acupuncture, relaxation, yoga, and chiropractic care. The medication of choice for pain relief is going to be acetaminophen because antiprostaglandins like aspirin and those NSAIDs are relatively contraindicated in pregnancy because they can cause premature closure of the ductus arteriosus in the fetus if given at or near term. You may also see other pain meds including cyclobenzaprine, oxycodone if used for short periods, not near term either, and prednisone as those are considered class B by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Class B is being that there's no evidence of risk in humans during pregnancy. So there's no literature examining the safety or efficacy of epidural steroid injections during pregnancy. In the author's clinical experience, interlaminar epidural steroid injections performed without any fluoroscopic guidance can be administered safely by an interventional pain specialist with extensive experience in epidural injections in pregnancy. Surgery for lumbar disc herniation during pregnancy with those experiencing cauda syndrome or a progressive neurologic deficit can be safely undertaken if clinical circumstances dictate. The article goes back into some other familiar topics that we briefed on before, including peripheral neuropathies like carpal tunnel syndrome and that lateral femoral cutaneous neuropathy. Remember that that lateral femoral cutaneous neuropathy is also called neuralgia parasthetica. For carpal tunnel syndrome, this affects up to 25% of women. It's the second most frequent musculoskeletal symptom. This is often occurring due to the increase in peripheral edema, and conservative methods tend to prevail. We're looking at things like activity modification, thermoplastic night splints, steroid injections if there's any continued symptoms, and very infrequently, surgery. Surgery is indicated during pregnancy or the postpartum period for patients with ongoing and severe symptomology and positive electrodiagnostic studies, so they're not just handing out surgery. Regarding neuralgia parasthetica, I just wanted to review its anatomy again. The lateral femoral cutaneous nerve is a pure sensory nerve supplying sensation to the anterior lateral thigh. It passes slightly medial and inferior to the anterior superior iliac spine after exiting the pelvis by traveling under the inguinal ligament. Injury to that nerve is going to cause burning, pain, or numbness in the region of innervation referred to as neuralgia parasthetica syndrome. Lateral femoral cutaneous neuropathy was the most common finding in a prospective study of postpartum lumbosacral spine and lower limb nerve injuries resulting from labor and delivery. 
The article mentions that C-section delivery may infrequently lead to this too, potentially from a wide incision or stretching or a retractor placement. As with carpal tunnel syndrome, pregnancy-related myalgia parasthetica syndrome typically resolves after delivery. Advice includes avoiding tight-fitting clothing and avoiding carrying children on the same side hip. Consideration of frequent position changes for laboring with avoidance of that prolonged hip flexion may reduce compression on the lateral femoral nerve. Now onto femoral neuropathy and some intrapartum nerve injuries. Improvements in modern obstetric practice might be responsible for a reduction in nerve injury rates of almost 1%. Injury rate was not associated with obstetric anesthesia, but rather nulliparity and prolonged pushing. Femoral neuropathy has been documented as a consequence of labor and delivery. During a prolonged second stage of labor, compression on the femoral nerve under the inguinal ligament may occur. Stretch or ischemia in the intrapelvic, poorly vascularized portion of the femoral nerve may be another mechanism of injury. I mentioned last time that the femoral nerve does not descend through the true pelvis, so let's go through where it comes from and where it goes. I feel like I should make a joke about Cotton Eye Joe there. It originates from the lumbar spine plexus L2 through L4 and descends from the lower lateral border of the psoas, then to the inguinal ligament and into that femoral triangle. It then branches into the anterior and the posterior division. Now the anterior division becomes the medial and the intermediate cutaneous nerve of the thigh, so that helps out with that sartorius muscle, and the posterior division supplies the quadriceps femoris muscle. The femoral nerve terminates at the saphenous nerve, so we remember that it's going to look hard to negotiate stairs, walk, and transfer with an injury to that nerve. That's because all those mayor players, like the iliacus, all four quads, and the sartorius are at risk here. Physical therapy evaluation and assistive device training is really important before hospital discharge. Treatment is supportive and prognosis is good. So remember that demyelinating lesions typically recover in six months or so. Moving on to lumbosacral plexopathies. Lumbosacral plexopathies resulting in proximal or distal lower limb weaknesses can occur. Plexus-associated foot drop can result from compression of the perineal division of the sciatic nerve in the pelvis or compression of the common perineal nerve at the head of the fibula. So this was documented in laboring women both from hand placement as well as from squatting. Obturator nerve palsies have been described as related to labor and delivery. That nerve crosses the pelvic brim and may be compressed by the descending fetal head or instrumentation used for fetal evacuation. Going back up to the upper limb, that mommy thumb or decorvanes tenosynovitis is something commonly found in pregnancy and postpartum. Remember that it's that inflammatory condition of the abductor pollicis longus and extensor pollicis brevis tendons of the first dorsal compartment within the wrist. We're going to see localized pain along the radial aspect of the wrist, and that's going to be largely thought to be due to the fluid retention related to the hormonal status that's suspected in the pathophysiology of pregnancy and lactating women. Overuse during childcare activities is implicated, and I think it's important to note that symptoms may persist until nursing is discontinued. We talked about our old friend, the Finkelstein's test last episode, and for treatment, we're looking at activity modifications and conservative musculoskeletal care, oral anti-inflammatories in postpartum, and corticosteroid injections in either pregnancy or postpartum. Local corticosteroid injections were actually shown to be more effective than splinting in a study of 18 patients. Okay, back down to the hip and the lower limb. Hip pain in pregnancy was touched on last time. I wish I could say that in two years they adjusted a large piece of this on commentary, but it's very similar to the 2005 article, so just bear with me here. 
Remember that conditions of the low back and the pelvic girdle can present with associated hip pain and should be included in the differential diagnosis. Also, intraarticular hip pathology can refer pain to the pelvis and the back and can be misdiagnosed as pelvic instability. The authors note the importance in testing hip range of motion with the pelvis and the lower spine maintained in a stable position in order to differentiate intraarticular hip pathology from referred pain. They go into transient osteoporosis of the hip and osteonecrosis of the femoral head again as well. So I think it's important that we remember those rare conditions too. Transient osteoporosis of the hip is a rare condition that presents with weight-bearing hip pain, especially in that third trimester of pregnancy. Early recognition and treatment with protective weight-bearing will allow the condition to be self-limited and go on without long-term consequences. So these authors recommend an AP radiography of the pelvis for assessment of this condition. The prognosis for natural recovery is good if the osteoporosis is associated with pregnancy and not related to pre-existing osteoporosis predating that pregnancy. Failure to diagnose this condition can result in fracture, which may require surgical intervention. So that's why early detection is key. What's interesting about avascular necrosis of the femoral head is that it's been reported in pregnant women with no additional risk factors for avascular necrosis. Several theories regarding the pathogenesis has been proposed, including higher adrenocortical activity combined with weight gain, and higher levels of female sex hormones in conjunction with increased intraosseous pressures. Similar to transient osteoporosis, this is occurring in the third trimester with weight-bearing pain in the hip, the pelvis, or the groin. At times, this pain can also radiate to the knee. So with this condition, they're looking more into the use of MRI imaging and conservative care to decrease progression of necrosis and management as appropriate when postpartum. For other causes of lower extremity pain during pregnancy, postpartum individuals are two times as likely to have leg and foot pain. So most of these complaints occur on the second or the third trimester. History of regular exercise was neither protective nor causative of pain related to pregnancy. We talked about this prior too, but there was a case study documenting the transient laxity of the anterior cruciate ligament in a pregnant woman during her third trimester and postpartum period. This patient's anterior cruciate ligament reconstruction was performed two months before conception. The relaxin-related dissociation of large collagen fibrils was thought to be causative, so the mechanism of ligamentous pain production may be secondary to strain. Ligaments, especially at the site of a bony insertion, lie on a bed of well-vascularized and highly innervated insertional angle fat. The differential diagnosis in pregnant and postpartum women with musculoskeletal pain should include other bone, joint, and soft tissue structures in addition to ligaments. For instance, the labrum of the hip or the meniscus of the knee may be at a greater risk of injury during pregnancy. History of previous injury in the area, current injury in adjacent areas, or a systemic metabolic condition such as pregnancy-related osteoporosis could be associated with an acute musculoskeletal injury in pregnant women. In one case study of a pregnant woman with a normal lumbar and femoral bone density, they noted bilateral stress fractures in the sacrum were related to an unaccustomed loading in the last trimester. So one difference in this article compared to the 2005 article is that they presented a case study. So let's go over that now. The case study was a 32-year-old woman who has given birth after her first pregnancy. She presents with a two-month history of postpartum anterior pelvic and groin pain. She relates a prolonged second stage of labor resulting in a normal vaginal delivery. 
There were no significant lacerations noted. Postpartum evaluations by her obstetrician and a consulting urologist revealed no pathology that would explain her pain. She had functional limitations secondary to pain, which included difficulty with stair climbing and lifting her baby. Pertinent physical exam findings at the time of presentation included a normal lower extremity neurologic exam, including all branches of the lumbar sacral plexus, pelvic rock test, pelvic compression, and palpation of their pubic symphysis, adductor tubercles, and adductor muscles all reproduced her pain. The initial diagnostic impression was of osteitis pubis. MRI was obtained and confirmed the diagnosis of osteitis pubis. There is no evidence of pelvic stress fracture, pubic symphysis rupture, or avascular necrosis of the hips. Management consisted of local injection of depomedrol with lidocaine to the pubic symphyseal region to reduce local pain. Acupuncture was added for adjunctive pain management. The patient chose not to use any medications because she was still nursing. A pelvic binder was provided for short-term use for support and to reduce pain from ambulating, climbing stairs, and lifting the baby. A physical therapist clinically experienced in this area provided gentle manual therapy, progressive pelvic, hip girdle, and abdominal stabilization exercises. Conditioning, endurance, and strength training progressed as per patient tolerance, and the patient improved over the course of three to four months. So, no take-home points today because this has a lot of review from the prior article, so we'll just do a summary. Virtually all women experience some degree of musculoskeletal discomfort during pregnancy, with approximately 25% having disabling symptoms. Many women develop musculoskeletal disorders postpartum due to the continued hormonal influences of lactation on the musculoskeletal system and the biomechanical and ergonomic stresses of childcare. Accurate and prompt diagnosis and comprehensive management are important for a good outcome and prevention of chronic pain and disability. Prognosis is often good, as many of the conditions are self-limiting. Okay, so thank you for sticking with me through some of this deja vu. Our next article is also Borgstein, but it's in 2011 on exercise, sports participation, and musculoskeletal disorders of pregnancy and postpartum. So I hope to see you guys all listening there. Bye, everyone. Bye.